it's in the air. This could be out. Diamond's underneath it. Will he catch it? He's got good hands. He's got him. Yes, he has. Diamond's got him in the deep. Having fumbled all night, he's taken the big one. It went wild in the air. Coach Talk. Hello and welcome to Coach Talk. The guest today is the former West Indian fast bowler, Michael Holding. He talks about the great fast bowlers and batsmen of his era, some of the controversial on-field incidents during his career, and also his thoughts on Mohammad Amir's return to cricket, amongst other things. Welcome to the show, Mikey. Thank you. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure having you on. Uh, you know, you played 60 tests, 102 ODIs, and hundreds of first-class and listed matches. So, w- when you made the turn at the top of your bowling mark, with the ball in hand, before you began your smooth glide to the crease, what usually ran through your mind? <laughs> well, what is going through my mind is what happened before with, with the previous ball, Sebastian. It's just a matter of who the batsman is and what the plan is. You you can't see there's a specific thought going through your mind every time you turn around. Hmm. It depends on what is actually going on in the game. And was that approach the same thing that you did in ODIs too? Or did you pay more attention to test matches and what was happening, and whereas you had separate uh, you know, plans that you had to execute, etc., in ODIs? No, it doesn't matter if, if it's an ODI or a test match. You have a plan to a particular batsman, whether it's in a test match or an ODI. You formulate your plans, and you try and execute those plans depending on you know, the conditions under which you're playing and exactly what is required at that time. In, regarding the plans, I mean, these days you see, you know, you have a whole phalanx of uh, analysts and analytics is playing such a huge role on what needs to be done and looking at the past, etc., looking at the tendencies of batsmen and the bowlers. Um, in, your case, in your days, how was it? Like, did you form your own plan or did, was it in consultation with the other bowlers or your captain or wicketkeeper? How did it work? Well, you always had team meetings. And the team meetings were where you formulated your plans. Whether you were formulating a plan as a batsman, as a batting team, or as a bowler in a, in a, in a bowling scenario. But at the same time, when you get out onto the field, you have to still be able to adjust according to what is taking place at the time. Hmm. There's no hard and fast rule as far as plans are concerned. Yes, you have your specific plans, but they can't be that rigid. You have got to be able to be adjusted to be able to adjust to whatever is taking place at the time on the field. Conditions will dictate exactly how your plans work. And if your plans aren't working the way you thought in the team meeting, you have got to be able to adjust. Can you offhand remember situations where the plans that you made worked perfectly and also the times where the plans didn't work and you had to come up with B and C and D? Subash, I've been retired now almost 30 (laughs) years. I ain't going to be able to sit down now and tell you a specific games when what worked and what didn't work. You know, I don't think about those things that so long after retirement. Okay, fair enough. Um, you had mentioned in an interview that a young player needs to attach themselves to the experienced players in the side to learn the craft, whether it's bowling or batting. Who were the ones that you attached to, uh, attached yourself to, and what were the sort of things you learned from them? Well, I roomed with Andrew Roberts a lot. When I first started playing with the West Indies in 75, I roomed with Lawrence Rowe. But then I roomed with Andrew Roberts a lot after that. And I certainly learned a lot from Andy. Andy used to talk a lot about cricket. Hmm. He wasn't someone that people would look at and think that he was very outgoing and someone that looked a little bit shy and even unfriendly at times. Hmm. But if you got to know him, you would know the person and you would understand that he knows a lot about the game. 
So rooming with him certainly helped me quite a lot. And even being on the field with him, you know, he wasn't afraid to come up and suggest things on the field. As a matter of fact, sometimes he wasn't even playing. I remember in India once he, he was off the field and sent out a message with his 12th man suggesting that I did something in a particular game. I, I learned a lot from him. I see. Um, you mentioned uh, Lawrence Shaw rooming with him, and there is a question from a listener, Ajay. And before his career was unfortunately cut short, you know, because of the allergy and the eyesight, was he a better batsman than, say, uh, Viv Richards? I wouldn't say he was a better batsman. He was certainly a lot more classical. He was technically a very sound batsman. Also, being a better batsman, no, that's up to conjecture, you know. Better mm. batsman would... would mean, oh, he could produce more than the Richards. I'm not, I wouldn't say that he could produce more than the Richards because I think the Richards was a very sound player and a very strong men, strong player mentally. But I would certainly think that Lawrence was technically a more sound batsman than the Richards. Hmm. And about Viv Richards, I mean, recently in cricket for the, you know, it was declared, it was announced that he was the best, greatest ODA player ever. And I don't think many people would question that judgment. You had mentioned that, you know, you didn't bowl that much in the nets. You know, you bowled uh, five overs to uh, Greenwich and Haynes, and then you went off uh, and you saved yourself for the matches. How would somebody go about bowling to him? You know, what sort of plans would they have? You mean in a game? Yes. Well, different people came up with different plans against Richards, and not many of them worked all that well. There's no specific plan that you can have through someone as good as that, in my opinion. Hmm. I think when you think of people like Big Richards and A.B. Davis and Virat Kohli and Tendulkar and Lara, those guys have got a specific areas that you think, okay, this is their weakness. I think it's a matter of just trying to be as consistent as you can with your, with your line and length. Don't give anything away and hope that you produce a delivery that can get, get you a wicket. Obviously, all batsmen, when they first get to the crease, are, that is when they are more able to be, to be making mistakes. So you try and eat those mistakes out of them as early as you possibly can, because when they do then get settled, it becomes a little bit harder. But there is no specific area that I would say that, you know, you look at Big Richard and you think, okay, this is what I want to do, and I have every chance of getting out if I do this. I'm, sh- I'm g- assuming you bowled a fair bit to him in the nets also. What were your experiences bowling to him? Did you have your mini victories in the nets against him? I didn't bowl to him very much in the nets. And when you're bowling in the nets, in the, in the team that I played in, not many bowlers ran in and bowled seriously in the nets because a lot of our batsmen did not particularly like batting in the nets. <laughs> the Richard in, in particular, I think, was very claustrophobic. He did not like batting within an enclosure. If you were having an, a middle practice out in the middle of the ground, you could bowl as fast as you want, you could bowl as many bouncers as you want, wanted. But in the next, if you bowl him one bouncer, he'd walk out. That was it. He wasn't interested in batting anymore. So next were never really take that seriously bowling to those batsmen. If you, if you want to bowl fast and you want to have good workout, you would have to make sure there were no batsmen in the nets and just run in and bowl and get somebody to throw, throw the balls back at you. So as far as the nets are concerned, forget seriousness in the nets in, in the era in which I played anyway. Hmm. But I had both of them in matches. Jamaica played against Leeward Islands. Yeah. I, play, I bowled against him Lancashire versus Somerset. I bowled against him um, Derbyshire versus Somerset. 
and he has had his success, and I've had my success in such a shared situation. Um, I, I had spoken to one of your uh, teammates from that era, Colin Croft, as well, and he had mentioned that you know he preferred bowling to batsmen who were uh, trying to play more shots because more shots to play, more chance of them getting out, uh, and he found it harder to bowl to defensive batsmen. How was it for you? Uh, did you have one preference one way or the other, and were there any batsmen in either of those molds that you found at times harder to dislodge? No, I didn't have any specific preference. What Colin Croft is saying there is totally correct. You know, if you have a batsman that is playing quite a lot of shots, he obviously is then giving you more opportunities for you to get him out because it's more likely that you'll make a mistake if he's playing a lot of shots. Mm -hmm. But then again, if you have batsmen that play a lot of shots and they are that good, they can embarrass you. <laughs> so it, it, it's a half a dozen of one and six of the other. At the same time, similarly, if you have a defensive batsman, if you have a defensive batsman, it means that you certainly have to produce a pretty good delivery to get him out because he's not taking too many risks. Hmm. But at the same time, he might not be that good to to get runs anyway. He might have a reasonable defense, but not too many attacking shots. So there's no hard and fast rule where things like that are concerned. You have a lot of different individuals who back differently. It's just a matter of what you think you need to do to get them out and what you think you need to do to make sure that they don't hit you out of the attack. Uh, was there any particular batsman that... Uh, did you ever have any trouble dislodging them? Lots of them. <laughs> uh, I'm bowling against a lot of great batsmen throughout my career. And there's no way that I, I could say that, you know, it was easy to dislodge these batsmen. Hmm. You get them out, yes, but... Then you, you get them out and you think to yourself, okay, I've done a pretty good job. And there are, there are lots of them. You know, if you're talking about opening batsmen, you're talking about Sunil Gavaskar, Sunil Gavaskar and Graham Gooch. Early in my career, I bowled against the Chapels. Then there were some Pakistani guys that I never played test matches again, but I played ODIs against like Zaire, Abbas, and Majid Khan, hmm. and Javed Miandad, um, deep with Paul as an English batsman. There are so many batsmen. Martin Crow from, from New Zealand. So many batsmen that I played against. And I thought to myself, okay, if I get these guys out, that means I've achieved something. I mean, even uh, Boycott had said in one interview that, you know, it, you were, you know, some of the spells that he faced from you, uh, including the one in 1981, the fastest he has ever faced a bowler. And he still felt that you were, you know, bowling within yourself. And he thought that was quite scary. Was there, was there instances where, you know, particular opposition or a batsman that made you lift the game up, bring your A game all the time? What I said, just no. There were lots of them too much, <laughs> lots. Okay. You know, okay. in, in, in my, my time of playing test match cricket in the 70s and 80s, if you look at those teams, there are lots of names in those teams that are household names and will remain household names for a very long time. Mm -hmm. There are lots of great players around, batsmen and the bowlers. And so, you know, every time you turn up for test matches against Australia, Pakistan, you think to yourself, yes, I've got to, to bring my A game here. I've got to make sure that I'm on top of the world and make sure that I bowl well. Mm. England had some great players, but they didn't have particularly have great teams in those days because in my 12 years of playing test match cricket, I never lost a test match to England. Mm. We lost test matches to Australia, we lost test matches to Pakistan, but we never lost one to England. Mm. So I would have to say that Pakistan and Australia were really the two top teams that every time we turned up, we knew we had to play well. 
you had, you know, at any given time, eight to ten great fast bowlers that Clyde Lloyd could pick four out of and play the test match. But there are only still 20 wickets to be shared. Uh, so was there a healthy rivalry between the teams on who's going to get those fivers and sixfers? I, I don't think so. Not in my mind anyway. I think we're all just there to make sure that we got those 20 wickets. Hmm. Obviously, each individual has his own pride in his performance and wants to take as many wickets as he possibly can. But I don't think there was any serious rivalry where a bowler would hope that another one didn't get so that he could get more. Hmm. That was never the case, at least not in my mind anyway. And I have no evidence that that was the case in the team which I played. We all went out there trying to win test matches and trying to get as many wickets as we could and beat the opposition. There is a question from a listener, Ashish, and that is, who do you consider in your playing time was the, the best fast bowler outside of the West Indies? Um, perhaps Dennis Lilly. Nice. I think Dennis Lilly would have to go down as the best fast bowler outside the West Indies that, that I played against. I see. Um, there were a few others, Richard Hadley, I wouldn't say he was fast, but he was fast enough. Imran Khan certainly had a great deal of pace, but I, I, I would think perhaps Dennis Lilly was the best. I see. And uh, there is another question, a listener question as well from Paddy, because you're talking different eras now, you know, from the 70s to where we are now, 2015. Um, who would be a quick uh, from that era that would easily switch into this era with uh, the you know bigger bats and flatter wickets and the bats more protected uh, and also somebody from this era that you would say yeah he's worthy of joining the great fast bowlers of that era well let me tackle the second part first because I, I, I don't think fast bowlers of previous era would worry too much about who had protection or who had a bigger <laughs> bat <laughs> If you're good enough to get them out, you'll get them out, whatever the bat is. Okay. One day, cricket and test match, cricket is a completely different situation. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a one day, game it will be different from a test match. But of the current era, I, I would say over the last 10 years or so, or perhaps 15 years, there are quite a few fast bowlers that I have seen that I have really enjoyed watching that I have rated. Shane Bond from New Zealand in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very in, in, impressed with him. Um, Dale Steen right now from South, South Africa. Shoei Bakhtar, when I first saw him, when Pakistan played Australia in Pakistan, shoes. I don't remember how long ago that was, but that was quite some time ago. I 90, was very 99? 99, I think. Yeah. I think it might have been 99, yes, when Taylor made that double century. Yeah. I was very impressed with him then, and then things started to go a little bit wrong with his action. Um, who else of the modern era? Brett Lee. Yeah, I like Brett Lee. Alan Donald, perhaps. Alan Donald, yes, for sure. So, is there anyone that you see that as a complete fast bowler from the names that you've mentioned that would be, um, you know, you would say, yeah, I would, I would have him as my teammate. All of those that I mentioned. Okay. <laughs> All of them that I mentioned. I, I, I think those guys were top class fast bowlers. Hmm. I want to talk about a couple of contentious issues from your uh, playing career. But firstly, I want to set it up like this. Um, You know, it was said that uh, changes to the laws of cricket were brought about as a result of the discomfort in the growing dominance of uh, West Indies team and the methods they used with their fast bowlers. 
On the other hand, uh, people talking about cricket, especially from the 70s, talking about it now, um, perhaps they may have some sort of nostalgia and look at, look at it through rose-tinted glasses. My first question is, do you think there is any kind of looking through uh, nostalgically uh, through rose-tinted glasses when evaluating the performance of the West Indies? Well, I, I don't know what, what glasses people are looking at. I, I just look at the records. <laughs> okay. I think if you look at the records, you'll see that the West Indies team of the Sendies and the 80s, they did, they did okay. But when you look at it, um, you know, there's one side saying, you know, uh, the laws had to be changed. And perhaps um, there was, as I said, a discomfort in how West Indies accomplished the results versus how people look at West Indies um, now. Looking at it from, you know, the benefit of hindsight, how do you weigh those two things? Well, I don't think the laws were, were changed that much. They, they had some rule that was brought in about short pitch bowling, about two bouncers in and over. But I think the West Indies continued to win after those two, two that law was brought in about two bouncers in and over. Hmm. Because the law stipulates about balls going over a batsman's shoulder and his head. No, why would you want to be bowling balls that short that they're going that high? So that wouldn't have affected the West Indies team. It did not affect the West Indies team when it was brought in because they continued to win. Even after I, the 80s era, we continued to win under 95, and that law was brought in during that time when they were still winning. As far as the fast bowling aspect of this is concerned, mm -hmm. as, that was just so great when you heard people saying, oh, West is playing four fast bowlers, and that's, that's outside of the spirit of the game. England played four fast bowlers in 2005 against Australia when they won the Ashes. Mm -hmm. I remember Steve Harmison hitting Ricky Ponting in, in, on his face at Lord's. Might have been the first test match, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. And all the people in, in the stands were cheering. It was great when they had their four fast bowlers and they were winning. But other people having four fast bowlers before that and winning was a problem. Hmm. So as I said, sour grapes. When you don't have it, you complain about it. When, you're, when you have it, you're happy to use it. I mean, so I don't worry about things like that. The hypocrisy of it. Um, has hypocrisy in, and cricket have gone hand in hand for a very long time. Very long time. And uh, do you still see that sort of aspects continuing in cricket in how uh, the administration and the players and the different boards treat the play, uh, players, etc., and theirs as well as the people from outside? Do you see that sort of thing continuing? Well, to a degree, I don't think it's as much now as it was. I think a lot of people are, are accepting know a lot of things that people didn't particularly like in years gone by. Hmm. Um, I don't think there's as much hypocrisy. There's, a lot, there's quite a bit of inconsistency. Hmm. But I wouldn't say there was as much hypocrisy now as there was years gone by. I want to talk about the, another on-field incident, which uh, when you bowled to Brian Close and you know, he was getting battered basically uh, all over the body. And, uh, yes, exactly. All over his body. And with the, the law that was brought in, the new the rule shield, that would not have affected what took place that day. Absolutely. But there's a sense of, I mean, you were obviously, you know, operating at the peak of your powers and he was who he was, Brian Close, at the time in his career. Um, was there, do you ever look back and say that was an unfair contest or do you felt that, you know, it was my job as the fast bowler to get him out? Uh, he should just, if he didn't want to be there, then he shouldn't have been there. I didn't pick him, Subash. 
I didn't pick someone that was over 40 years old. He was representing his country. I was representing mine. If they pick a two-year-old baby to come out and bat, hmm. does that mean you're going to bowl all full tosses so that he can get the ball away? You pick your cricketers, we pick our cricketers. It's a contest. Your country versus my country. I can't adjust the way I play depending on who you pick and the type of person you pick. Hmm. Oh, I mean, would, would you say that if you didn't give your very best, no matter who the batsman was or who the country that you're playing against, uh, would that be not doing justice to your own game, but, you know, it could be disrespectful to the opposition as well? Well, you have got to give justice to your, to your game and your country. Hmm. It's as simple as that. Okay, fair enough. Um, I want to talk about the, uh, that contentious 1980 New Zealand tour as well. You know, there was a question from one of the listeners from New Zealand, and he didn't mean it in a nasty sense or anything. He, he says that uh, his love for cricket comes from watching the West Indies in that series particularly. What really went on? That sort of player behavior, uh, you know, where Colin Croft runs into the umpire, you kick the stumps. You know, of course, there are some decisions that uh, didn't go in your favor, but when you look back on it, uh, any sense of regret at all? Well, first of all, if he got his interest from in cricket from watching the West Indies in that series, that's a sad way to start watching cricket because we didn't play cricket in that series. Hmm. That series was a farce. So I would hope that he got his interest from in cricket from watching West Indies or watching some other cricket. Hmm. Secondly, yes, obviously, when things like that happen, you look back at it and you say to yourself, oh, that, that was sad. That is not something that you want to see repeated on a cricket field and something that you, you would encourage people to do. It's something that happened. It was a reaction to something that was taking place during that series. And we're all human beings. People will react adversely to adverse if, events. But as I keep on saying to people, we go through life, people make mistakes. The important thing to do is learn from your mistakes and don't repeat those mistakes. People who are habitual offenders keep on repeating mistakes. They then have a problem. They obviously don't learn. People who learn from mis their mistakes end up better people. Hmm. On that, um, I want to talk about a contemporary topic, which is uh, the case of Mohamed Amir. Uh, you know, he's now playing domestic cricket. His ban from international cricket is coming to an end soon. Uh, and if he were to be selected, he could play for Pakistan as well. This is from listeners Shiva and Bharatram. And when the uh, spot fixing thing happened, it was one of the saddest sights, um, watching you on television, uh, emotionally uh, getting choked up, and David Gower had to go to a break. How have you viewed that event uh, since then, and what is your take on his uh, comeback into cricket? As, since he just talked about people making mistakes in lives and then learning from it. Well, again, that's another example of what I'm talking about. He was 18 years old when he when he made that mistake. It's unfortunate that it took place. It should never have taken place. You you don't want to see things like that happening in a cricket match or in a cricket on, a, on the cricket field. Although since then we have had a lot of instances of things happening. But when you're 18 years old and you make a mistake, I do not think that that mistake should cost you your career for the rest of your life. I think you should be given an opportunity to correct that mistake. 
give me another opportunity to resume your career, then if you offend again, I think that should be it. As I said, people make mistakes in life. I don't believe that one mistake should cost people that dearly. I've seen in normal life, in the normal day-to-day living, people have made serious mistakes in, in life. They have driven drunk driving, for instance. They have killed people with their drunk driving. And they are given other opportunities to continue their life. They serve their term. They do whatever the court says that they have to do. And they are given another opportunity to continue their lives. Now, why should a cricketer be any different? Why should he not be given an opportunity if he has just made one mistake? To show the world that he has learned from that mistake and he won't repeat that mistake and he will come out a better person. Why shouldn't he be given that opportunity? Hmm. And that's what I'm thinking about as far as Mohammed Amir is concerned. Okay. He was a young man when he made that mistake. As far as I know and as far as I can see, he was not the man who planned it. And it seemed to me as if he wasn't all that keen on doing what was asked. But he went through with it because apparently they had agreed to do it. Why shouldn't he be given another opportunity? Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and uh, lastly, uh, Mikey, uh, fast bowler that you admired, whether from West Indies or outside of West Indies that you admired, and a batsman, uh, as difficult as it might be, a uh, batsman that you admired. Again, <laughs> you're asking me about a lot of different names here because... I mean, you know, uh, I mean like, when you ask people, you know, uh, you, your favorite fastballer, and a lot of them would say that uh, Malcolm Marshall was the most complete fastballer. Um, you know, well, he was a great fastballer, definitely. You know, if I'm thinking about West Indian fastballers alone, Malcolm Marshall and Anna Roberts would be my top two. Hmm. It was pretty difficult for me to, to split them. Okay. A lot of people forget Andy Roberts, and he has gone out of a lot of people's minds because, you know, he didn't continue in cricket after retiring. I, I, I have lingered in people's minds because I'm on television. Yeah. But okay. if Andy Roberts was a television broadcaster, people would still think a lot more about him and would rate him a lot higher than they're rating him because he would be still in people's minds. As far as I'm concerned, Marco Marshall and Andrew Roberts were the two best fast bowlers I have seen from the West Indies. Outside of the West Indies, no, you have another matter because I just mentioned a lot yeah. of fast bowlers okay. of recent times that I certainly admire or admired when they first started. And of course, in, when we played, there was Imran Khan and Dennis Lilla, I thought were great fast bowlers as well. And as you just mentioned, you know, you've been on television after your playing career was over for quite a bit now. Um, as a close observer of the game, um, what is your take on the health of the sport, uh, not just in the test playing nations, but all around? What is, what is your take on how things are progressing? Are you happy with how things are going? Not at all. I've said it for many years now, not recently last five years. I've said it since the last decade mm. that there's too much cricket being played. And it seems as if they are playing more and more cricket. It doesn't seem as if there's a day these days where there isn't some form of cricket being played somewhere in the world. And fast bowlers in particular cannot survive under these circumstances. The workload is too much. You are even having batsmen having to miss series and miss test matches because of the workload. And I do not see how that can be healthy for the game. You want your best players playing at the very top. 
as much as you possibly can. And the amount of cricket being played, it is impossible to have your best players playing on a regular basis, whether they are batsmen or bowlers, and bowlers in particular. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there's too much lip service being given to the sanctity of Test Match Cricket and nothing being done to protect Test Match Cricket. All the board members, all the administrators around the world are looking at is the bottom line. When I hear, for instance, that the last World Cup was the best World Cup ever, I shudder. Hmm. Because obviously people who have said that are administrators just looking at the amount of money that the World Cup has brought in. Certainly they have, <coughs> certainly have not looked at the cricket that was played. Because you had 49 games, and I do not think you had more than five or six interesting games out of, that, out of those 49 games. You had some interesting moments in some of those games. You had some fantastic batting performances in, in, in some areas, some fantastic bowling performances in some areas. But as far as the games were concerned, you had a lot of boring games. So I do not understand how anyone can say that this was the best World Cup ever. But as I said, that came from administrators, and, the, and all they were doing was looking at bottom line. Hmm. On that note, Mikey... <coughs> Thank you so much for spending this morning. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Sebastian. No problem.